Christchurch, New Malden, 5th of January 2020, 6.30 service. Ruth Henson speaking on a Christian response to those who voted differently from me. And a new sermon series on a Christian response to different groups of people. And this week we're considering a Christian response to those who voted differently from me. I've assumed Stephen is referring to the general election. But if there's someone you need to reconcile with after falling out over Strictly or X Factor, I hope you will find some encouragement too. I know some of you enjoy hearing insights from the monthly preachers' meetings, which I sometimes share in my sermons. But I'm afraid I was stranded in Dusseldorf, courtesy of the airline Flyby, so I wasn't at the December meeting. The following Sunday, I asked Stephen for the thinking behind this week's topic, but he said he didn't need to give me any ideas because he knew I'd be great, but then qualified that by adding that at least he hoped I would. <laughs> Filled with that reassurance, I started to give some thought to the theme. I couldn't help but remember that they say the three things you should never talk about are religion, money and politics. But here I was preparing to speak on two out of three. And yet, as our reading from Romans 12 and 13 reminded us, it is right that we do not keep our political thinking compartmentalized separately from our faith, which might lead us to think that God and politics do not mix, or that different rules apply in that area of our lives so that we end up excusing or condoning attitudes or behaviour which we would readily recognise as sinful in other areas of our walk with God. When I'm getting ready for a talk, I like to bear in mind the derivations of relevant words and phrases in the original language to see if that can shed any extra light or deeper understanding. And in the case of this talk, I was reminded of a memorable reflection on the roots of the word politics, which can be broken into two parts, poly, meaning many, and ticks, meaning <laughs> blood-sucking creatures. <laughs> Obviously, that's a far cry from the genuine derivation of the word, and we will actually refer to the real root word later. But that joke demonstrates a widespread opinion regarding many politicians, especially a lot of those in positions of leadership or responsibility. In the run-up to the general election, social media seemed to be full of vitriolic rants against various high-profile candidates and the party leaders, alongside very dismissive and potentially hurtful comments asking how anyone could be so stupid as to vote for one side or the other. But when I was last standing here, just four days after the election, speaking on Mary's description in the Magnificat of God's agenda for social justice, I referred to the fact that I'd been pleasantly surprised by a number of posts I'd seen in the immediate aftermath, calling on people to move forward and work together for our country and our world, rather than carrying on arguing over what should have transpired in the election, according to their opinion. 
If I continue to judge the mindset of our nation by what I've seen most of on social media since then, I would say that the moving on from the election has generally continued. We swiftly moved into festive posts about Christmas, but with a noticeable awareness of those for whom Christmas would be difficult, which I hadn't noticed to such an extent before, reflecting a recognition of the number of people struggling with a variety of issues. After the humorous posts concerning the general confusion regarding the day of the week in the days following Christmas, there was a wave of positivity and optimism in the Happy New Year posts, spelling out hopes and wishes for 2020. But already, in the opening days of the new year, other heartbreaking scenes and concerns have permeated social media feeds, with despair regarding the incomprehensible extent of the fires in Australia and the trending hashtags of the last couple of days of World War III and Franz Ferdinand following the assassination by the US of the Iranian general. But when Parliament resumes after its Christmas break tomorrow, with the deadline for getting Brexit done so close and an impending Labour leadership contest, perhaps the dormant vitriol and latent anger will resurface. So our topic this evening is definitely still worth considering. Perhaps you're someone who is sitting there feeling like this topic isn't so relevant for you because you don't have strong feelings towards those who voted differently, not of disbelief, nor anger, nor even frustration. I hope that you will still find something helpful in this talk, perhaps an attitude to apply to a different area of conflicted feelings, or perhaps a practical application to consider out of concern for our nation or world. But perhaps you are someone for whom this topic is a particular challenge. Maybe you are experiencing deep feelings of hurt, disappointment or anger. Perhaps towards people you would otherwise be close to, colleagues, neighbours, friends or even family members. I hope that nothing I say will give the impression of trivialising such feelings. And I also hope if this evening's topic stirs up difficult emotions and challenges, that you will find someone to talk to and pray with after the service. Bearing all that in mind, it's appropriate that the first response I want to talk about is be sensitive. However you might be feeling about the result of the general election or how other people voted, I think we all need to remember that for lots of people, how they voted was something they agonised over or felt very conflicted about. Some people who had always voted previously for the same party voted differently for the first time in their lives. And some people even broke with the tradition or even expectation of countless generations of their families or communities because they felt so strongly about a particular policy or because of how they felt about the party leaders or because they decided to vote tactically. If that is not our experience, we might not be able to understand or empathise with how difficult that may well have been and how much anxiety 
or wrestling with conscience or consequences that might have caused. For others, who to vote for was not an obvious choice at all. There was no party which ticked all of their boxes and no leader they felt inspired to put their faith in. But they didn't want to forfeit their democratic right to vote, so they had to weigh up all their conflicting opinions and agonise over who to put their cross next to. I think these two tweets from the former England cricketer Graham Swan are representative of the emotions and confusion felt by many. Hope you're all going to vote tomorrow. Who you support or what you believe is your business. But if you don't go to the polls, you waste the chance to have your say. Personally, I wish the main two contenders for PM weren't such alarmingly bad prospects, but hey-ho. If you want to stay in Europe, save and boost the marvellous NHS, think that private schools are a good thing, think that getting into bed with Trump is lunacy, are disgusted by anti-Semitism and want to see an immediate focus on saving our planet, how do you vote tomorrow? Maybe you were one of those who agonised over how to vote because you felt called to switch allegiance after many years or to vote tactically, even if that meant not voting for who you would otherwise have chosen, or because there was no obvious choice for you, to, for you of who to vote for. Or perhaps you had a completely different experience, and how to cast your, your vote was clear-cut and obvious. Whatever our own personal experience, we must be mindful of those who struggled and who may still be feeling guilt, or regret, or shame. Any angry or dismissive remark we make will cut them all the deeper, so we need to be sensitive and thoughtful. That leads us to the second response I believe we're called to. Don't judge. It's very easy for us to assume that other people in similar circumstances to ourselves should and will see things the same way as us and draw the same conclusions based on the manifestos and policies of the different parties. It can even be easy for us to look at people whose situations vastly differ from our own and still make assumptions about how they should feel and should decide to vote. I read this tweet from a Labour supporter. A fella from Scunthorpe has just been on national TV Look around you, shops are shutting, businesses are closing, the full place is falling down. So I voted for change. That's why I voted Conservative. Let that sink in. We might like to debate, discuss and conjecture regarding what led people to vote the way they did. But we should not allow ourselves to sit in judgment. Aside from the fact that God calls on us not to judge others, which should be reason enough, we also cannot sit in judgment because we haven't walked in their shoes. We cannot understand what brought them to the point of casting their vote the way they did when their experience of life is vastly different from our own. Imagine a nature documentary where one of the scenes involves a lioness hunting an antelope, only for the antelope to escape at the last moment. 
If, in the preceding moments, the programme has focused on the antelope's family, with mounting tension as the danger increases, the moment of escape will be one of celebration and joy for the viewer. But if, instead, the documentary has focused on the lioness and her cubs, who are desperate for food after being separated from the rest of the pack, the moment of escape will be seen as one of desperation and failure as starvation may ensue. It's all a matter of perspective, determining the side we back and what we hope for. Rather randomly, I found myself wondering how the characters of the Christmas story might have voted in the election of 2019. I guess you would put the shepherds down as traditionally being Labour supporters. But would the concerns about anti-Semitism in the party have pushed them to vote differently? The wise men you would imagine to be Conservative supporters. But I wonder whether worries about freedom of travel and import of expensive goods post-Brexit might have left them conflicted. And then there's Mary. Given her words about social justice in the Magnificat, I definitely assume she'd vote either Lib Dem or Green. But then again, she's pretty switched on, so maybe she would choose to vote tactically instead. That's just a silly bit of conjecture. But the point is that we are all different with diverse life experiences. In the Christmas story, God reveals himself to a wide cross-section of society and uses those same people to bring glory to his son. In the same way, God reveals himself to supporters of the wide spectrum of political parties and can use people of any and every political persuasion for his glory and purposes. But there's definitely a key player from the Christmas story who we shouldn't claim is solely on one side or another, and that's God. We may feel that to our understanding, one party's manifesto lines up more closely with what we believe are God's priorities for our nation and our planet, and indeed, that may well have rightly been our motivation for voting for that party. But we cannot assume that all Christians will have come to the same conclusion, and therefore that all Christians will share our joy or disappointment or frustration or whatever over the result of the election. We also should remember that as our reading from Romans reminded us, all governments and rulers are under God's authority and exercise only power which is given by him. So his will and agenda will not be determined by who comes to power. Throughout the Bible, God is able to use rulers of all kinds, good or wicked, Jew or Gentile, believing or hard-hearted, to bring about his purposes for his people. Maybe God will choose to use the least likely politician we can think of to bring about his will for our country in 2020. So if we're not judging, what should we be doing instead? We should be united. Our country is full of brokenness and division, 
as we have seen so clearly played out over recent times in the opposing responses to Brexit, in an increase in racism and anti-Semitism, in rises in gang culture and knife crime, and indeed in bitter feelings over the recent election. I don't know how you feel about the Queen's Christmas speech. As a child, those 10 minutes seemed to stretch on forever because I knew I wasn't allowed to open my presents until after it was over. <laughs> but in more recent years, I've come to very much appreciate the wonderful Christian witness which she maintains in her messages year by year. This year was no exception, and it was reconciliation and the overcoming of division which she chose to focus on, after what she rather carefully chose to describe as a bumpy year. Here is an extract from her message. At the heart of the Christmas story lies the birth of a child, a seemingly small and insignificant step overlooked by many in Bethlehem, but in time, through his teaching and by his example, Jesus Christ would show the world how small steps taken in faith and in hope can overcome long-held differences and deep-seated divisions to bring harmony and understanding. Many of us already try to follow in his footsteps. She continued, as Christmas dawned, church congregations around the world joined in singing, it came upon the midnight clear. Like many timeless carols, it speaks not just of the coming of Jesus Christ into a divided world many years ago, but also of the relevance, even today, of the angel's message of peace and goodwill. It's a timely reminder of what positive things can be achieved when people set aside past differences and come together in the spirit of friendship and reconciliation. And as we all look forward to the start of a new decade, it's worth remembering that it is often the small steps, not the giant leaps, that bring about the most lasting change. I don't know about you, but I felt that message was spot on, exactly what our nation needed to hear. And it's not just the Queen who has inspiring words to say on the subject. This was the Facebook message posted by one of my colleagues as her thought for the new year. Happy New Year, everyone. Peace, health and happiness to you all. My wish for this new decade, that any differences between people are an opportunity to build bridges, not walls. I truly believe that the most remarkable, radical and distinctive witness to God's love, light and hope which the church can share with our nation is by being united. It is so countercultural and requires humility and sacrifice, but is an amazing demonstration of the healing and reconciling power of God's love. The Queen talked about setting aside past differences and my colleague mentioned building bridges. Our reading from Romans contained these instructions. Live in harmony with one another. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Perhaps for some of us here, those are words which we need to hear in relation to those who vote, voted differently from us. 
we should ask for God's help to move forward in forgiveness, reconciliation and love. So these are at least some of the responses to those who voted differently, which I feel God is calling us to. Be sensitive, don't judge, and be united. But I would like to finish by mentioning three other practical applications I believe we are also called to in the wake of the general election. Firstly, pray for the government. It may be exactly the government we voted for, or the precise opposite of how we voted. But whichever is true, we still need to pray for our government. As we've already mentioned, our reading from Romans reminded us that the authorities that exist have been established by God, and the one in authority is God's servant for your good. We have already acknowledged that God uses rulers of all kinds throughout the Bible, so it's not surprising that Paul urges us to pray for those in authority in 1 Timothy 2. I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. However we feel about our leaders and their policies, we still need to pray for them. William Tyndale gives us the ultimate example of this in his last words as he was burned at the stake when he was heard to say, Lord, open the King of England's eyes. So what sorts of things should we pray? We can pray for MPs who are Christians to be open to God's leading and empowered to stand up for the truth and for God to be at work in the minds and hearts of those MPs who do not yet know him, drawing them to himself. Whether they know God or not, we can pray for him to guide them as they guide us, giving them a heart for love, peace and justice. We can pray that they would be enabled to make difficult decisions wisely, putting the best interests of those they serve before their own interests. We can pray that God would use them to bring about his good purposes. And we shouldn't limit these prayers to our national leaders, but also to global leaders, especially at a time of crisis in a number of countries around the world. Closely linked with that first application is a second point. Keep faith in God's sovereignty. Later in this service, we will sing these words. You're the God of this city. You're the king of these people. You're the lord of this nation. You are. If we find ourselves despairing over decisions being taken by those in authority or overwhelmed with fears and concerns regarding the state of some aspect of our society or our planet, clinging on to our belief in God's sovereignty and the hope which this affords us must go hand in hand with praying for those in positions of authority under the ultimate lordship of God. We only have to look at the events of the Christmas story to be reminded how God can use unexpected people, events and circumstances to fulfil his purposes for his people. What from our perspective, given the last couple of years, might look like a desperate political mess 
God is entirely capable of redeeming and using for his glory and his good purposes. And a third political, practical application is, in the words of Gandhi, be the change you want to see. At the start of this talk, I quoted a fictional derivation of the word politics, but the actual derivation is relevant at this point. It is drawn from the Greek words polis, meaning city, and polites, meaning citizens, and is therefore linked to the life of the city and the responsibilities of the citizens. One definition I read based on this derivation put it like this. Politics is concerned with the whole of our life in human society. It is the art of living together in a community. It is about gaining power for social change. When I stood here three weeks ago speaking about the Magnificat, I quoted these two posts which I had seen on Facebook, calling on people, however they voted, to commit to choices they could make to help those in need and to combat the environmental crisis. Choices such as donating to food banks and avoiding single-use plastics. Barack Obama famously said, change will not come if we wait for some other person or if we wait for some other time. We are the ones we've been waiting for. We are the change that we seek. Whether we have confidence in the recently elected government to prioritise the action necessary for the social crisis in our nation and the environmental crisis in our world, or whether we have no confidence in that whatsoever, we still need to be ready to play our part. As we head into this new year and new decade, which change, which commitment is God calling on us to make? How are we being challenged to be the change you want to see, irrespective of our political allegiance? My prayer is that can be something we can all be united about. <clears throat>